0: Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. The first Saturday of May is coming up, and it's time for the most exciting two minutes in sports the Kentucky Derby. That means I get to share this timeless conversation I had with Donna Barton Brothers the chief operating officer of Starlight Racing. She also just happens to be one of the most decorated female jockeys in the horse industry and the leading on-track television broadcaster for NBC. Now, when you watch the Kentucky Derby, right after the race, she'll be the one out there on the track riding her horse backwards as she talks to the winning jockey in the moments after the race. Now that takes some talent. But you know, that's not the only thing that makes Donna remarkable. She has so much great insight about what it takes to win. And as you'll hear today, there's a ton of parallels between how jockeys get the most out of their horses and how we as leaders can get the most out of our teams. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Donna Barton Brothers. Donna, I want to thank you so much for for being on the show.
1: Well, I have to admit, not only is it my pleasure, I'm really honored because I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and you have a pretty heady group that I've listened to already. So I'm not really sure why, why I'm here, but I'm honored to be here.
0: You're now the chief operating officer of Starlight Racing. Now, what's what's the biggest uh, leadership challenge you, you, you have for your business at, at Starlight Racing?
1: I will say the the biggest challenge for me, David, and it's interesting that you asked that because I thought about it after listening to some of your podcasts is that I came into my position at Starlight Racing after having done two things in my life that I would call careers. One was being a jockey and the other one is working as a reporter for NBC Sports. Neither one of those are team sports. I've never had to try to develop a team. I've never had to try to get the boss and the employees on the same page. And so I realized that As the chief operating officer at Starlight Racing, I had learned how to run a team. My boss um, does a really great job at what he does. Jack Wolf is the um, managing partner of Starlight Racing. He does a phenomenal job of hiring the right trainers, of hiring the right bloodstock agents to buy the horses, of getting people together and getting money together to pay for those horses. But he doesn't see himself so much as a leader of employees. He sees himself as a leader of the horse racing partnership. And so I recognized early on that I'm going to have to take that role because he doesn't really want it. And so sometimes I have to play the role of uniter of both the boss and the employees and try to bring everybody together and get everybody on the same page. And it's been challenging, but I've enjoyed the challenge.
0: (laughs) You know, as you, uh, you know, you know, you've, you've, been very successful, and as as a jockey, uh, now you're in this the in, in the business of horse racing. But you've also become a famous, uh, well-known uh, broadcaster. How'd you get into the business? Tell us the story of how you got in got into broadcasting.
1: As you mentioned, I was uh, fortunate enough to have some success as a jockey. And so, you know, think about riding at Turfway Park in the winter. And let's say that there's a story that one of the local news stations wants to do and they want to talk to a jockey. Well, in the winter at Turfway Park, there weren't a lot of jockeys there who, number one, spoke English. And if they did, were particularly articulate with English. And so if they wanted to talk to a jockey, I was one of the leading riders there. Turfway Park management would often say, we've got just the one for you. Donna Barton will talk to you, right? And so I did a lot of interviews because of that. I did a lot of interviews because of my success, which I'm grateful for. And so when I retired from riding, I think it was just sort of a natural progression, but I didn't really, um, I really didn't put out feelers for it. It just sort of happened. Um, The local uh, news stations here had me do some derby coverage for their um, derby coverage in the very beginning, just a little bit here and there, not even on Derby Day. Just I did like a um, horse racing 101 piece with Julie Koenig back at WHAS many, many years ago. And so when um, I went down to New Orleans for the winter, I started doing interviews after the stakes races there. And then when I came back here in the spring, this was in 1999, I retired in 1998 from being a jockey. Um, John Asher had just been promoted to vice president, and he asked me if I would do the handicapping segments with Mike Battaglia. Vice
0: president of Churchill Downs? Yes,
1: one of the many vice presidents, I'm sorry, at Churchill And so I um, started doing the handicapping segments with Mike Battaglia. I had never handicapped a race, by the way, from the standpoint of how do you bet on it? I had always handicapped the race very biased on how do I win? And so it was a new way to learn how to look at the race. And that's what I was doing in 2000 when NBC came to Churchill Downs because they had acquired the rights for the Derby for 2001. And they saw what I was doing. And unbeknownst to me, they needed a reporter on horseback and asked me if I'd join their broadcast team. So I really got kind of lucky on that.
0: You're always the first to congratulate the the derby winner. Uh, you know, tell us about the process. Of, how do you get in position to be there to to greet the, the, the derby winner and
1: Having a fast horse helps. So that's the first thing. Um, I always find a good horse to ride because I have connections at the different racetracks I go to. Now, if it's at Churchill Downs and it's the Kentucky Derby, that's a mile and a quarter race, as everybody knows. And so the quickest and most efficient way for me to get there from Churchill Downs is as soon as they spring the latch on those horses, I take off the other way. So the horses are racing counterclockwise. I'm racing on the outside fence clockwise around the racetrack. When I get to about the half mile pole, the horses have now turned up the backside and are racing towards me. So I stop, let them pass. And by the way, it's a nice snapshot for me of the the horses and how they all look at that point. And then I continue down the backside again, going the opposite direction from them. And I'll have time to sit over there for, I would say, a good 10 seconds before the horses cross the wire And then I'll immediately take my notes out and look real quick on in, you know, I've pretty much have all this stuff memorized at that point, but it never hurts to take the notes out just because there's so many things going on there's so many things to know. And so I'll look and um, then I just try to stay out of the shot until they get the shot that they wanted the derby winner galloping out and all that. And then I get in there. It's different at the other two tracks for the triple crown. So, but after the Preakness, And after the Belmont stakes, when they spring the latch on those horses, meaning when they start, I'll actually come out from behind the starting gate and follow the horses. So I'll be headed the same direction as them, and then I just go over on the backside and wait for them. And how do I know what's going on, by the way, is I just listened to the call of the race from Larry Colmus because early on I tried to listen to the call watch the race on one of the big screens, ride my horse, try to make sure my horse didn't spook or duck from anything. And I realized that that is just too many multitasking things for me to do. And so I just listen to the call of the race and try to ride my horse and make sure I don't fall off while the horses are out there running around the racetrack. That would be quite a debacle. <laughs> so that's how I get there.
0: What would be your most memorable Kentucky Derby? Most memorable, most emotional
1: Well, I think the one probably that stands out for everybody, and it would for me too, is when Calvin Burrell won his first Kentucky Derby um, on a horse named Street Sense, trained by Carl Nasker. And the reason why is because Calvin Burrell, that was his first of three Kentucky Derby wins. He doesn't know how to be anything other than raw emotion. And so when he, after the race, as soon as I caught up with him, he was just, just so grateful and he was already crying and he just doesn't hold anything back as far as his emotions go. He was grateful to Carl Nasker who had given him that opportunity. Um, He was really close to his parents and they weren't able to be there. They were in a nursing home in Arkansas and um, so he 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 was grateful that he had won the race and at the same time mournful that his parents weren't there to celebrate with him. But his older brother, who was 12 years older than him, who practically raised him really, was there. So we were able to talk about what it meant to him to have Cecil be there, uh, his brother Cecil Burrell. And and just the, the raw emotion of Calvin after that race, it was really touching.
0: You know, a lot of people put the Kentucky... Derby on their bucket list. You know, this is something I have to do. Why do you think the Kentucky Derby should be on your, your bucket list?
1: Well, I think Ashley Judd said it best this year. She did a tease, as we call it, for the NBC show. And they had her sitting in a bar that was looked like an empty bar. And they poured her a drink of bourbon on the rocks. And she looked right at the camera and said, so you're at a Derby party? Really? How nice. And then she paused perfectly as Ashley Judd would, and then said, you know, you're not going to hear this from many people, and especially not now, but I'm going to be honest with you. You're kind of blowing it right now. Until you've been there and seen it with your own eyes, smelled it, felt it, you haven't seen the Kentucky Derby. And she talked about how she's from Kentucky and it has this. And that's the thing that I've often said is that you know what we do with NBC, we have 75 cameras on the racetrack. We have microphones everywhere. And still, we'll never be able to capture the feel of it. We're never going to be able to capture what it feels like when everybody, 160,000 people in all, sing my old Kentucky home together. My
0: favorite moment. Yeah.
1: When everybody stands up in reverence of not just this day, but these three-year-olds that are out on the racetrack about to give everything for us. And so, yeah, it's just, the feel will never be able to be captured and that's why you have to be there.
0: Donna, how do you try to differentiate yourself or do you in in the business of broadcasting? And what what do you think, you know, do you really think about what you do that's going to make you better than someone else?
1: Uh, Yeah, sometimes I think about that too much. And so about a few years ago, I had a a bit of a meltdown with my sister and um, we were actually at a Tony Robbins event. And so, you know, how Tony Robbins is, just be the best at everything, right? And I had a bit of a meltdown with my sister. And I said, you know, our mother raised us to be the best at whatever it is that we do. And I get that. I said, but I am not the best broadcaster in the industry. And she said, are you out of your mind? And I said, no, I'm not out of my mind. I think Diane Sawyer, for example, is a better broadcaster. But as my sister pointed out, Donna, there's never been anybody who's been on horseback and done what you've done better. There might be a couple of people who have done it as well, but nobody's ever done it better. And so what she taught me from that, and I'm grateful for that, is that you have to find your niche, right? So like, while I might not ever be Bob Costas, Bob Costas is also never gonna be Donna Barton Brothers. And so it's true, riding on horseback is unique while you're reporting. And so I have to make sure that, what I tried to make sure that I do is that the fact that I'm out there on horseback gives us a distinct advantage to be, be able to report things that otherwise we wouldn't be able to report. Now, honestly, 80% of the time that I'm out there, it doesn't really matter. But that 20%, when you've got somebody who can, in a snap, be at the half mile pole on the backside and report what's happening back here right now, or why there's a delay at the start, or talk to the jockey right after the race and capture that emotion before that emotion has time to go away that's important to our broadcast, to a great broadcast. And we have an amazing team of broadcasters who all bring their own little niche to it. And so I just try to make sure that I bring my niche.
0: That's great. What leader in in the broadcasting business do you admire most and why?
1: Well, Tom Hammond was my mentor. So when I started with NBC, he lives in Lexington, Kentucky. He's born and raised in Kentucky. And he sort of took me in right away. And um, I remember early on, I went to Tom and said, what do you think if I asked this question? And I told him the question. I can't remember what it is. And he just looked at me and said, you're going to run the risk of your question being a lot longer than the answer. Shorten that down and it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> and so I learned that, you know, it's not about me and we've got to figure out um, the best way to get that person's personality and that person's answers to come through and, um, and bring that into people's living rooms. And Tom is still my go-to guy. If there's anything that I, uh, that I um, have questions about, I'll call Tom. And he's a great storyteller. And that's one of the things I learned from Tom is to be a great storyteller.
0: Tell us about your upbringing.
1: Well, um, my mother and father uh, were both involved with horses. In fact, before my mother was 19 years old, she had been a trick rider on the rodeo circuit. She had been an exhibition bull rider. She had been a card dealer on the blackjack table in Las Vegas, and she'd been a semi-truck driver and she was my size, five foot two. And that was before she was 19. And uh, my father was a rough stock rider in the rodeo circuit. So they divorced when I was a year and a half old, but they were pretty eclectic in and of their own right. And so we grew up uh, really in and around the horse business. My mother became a jockey. She was one of the first half dozen women to be licensed as such in the United States. That was 1969. And she won 72 races that year, which made her the leading female rider in the nation. And it was a distinction that she held throughout her entire career. And in fact, till she retired four years after she retired.
0: She was an amazing trailblazer in, in, in the sport. What, what characteristics did she possess that you think all leaders should have?
1: Well, it's, you know, I started as a jockey in 1987. This sounds like I've changed the subject, but I haven't. In, in 1987, when people would say to me, um, do you feel like you're ever discriminated against because you're a female? I literally thought... People, it is 1987. That doesn't happen anymore. And the reason why I really felt that way is because I grew up in a household with a mother who was the leading female rider in the nation. She started riding and was leading rider at small tracks in America, where women had not been riding there three years prior, and now she's there and she's the leading rider. And If she ever was discriminated against for any reason, she certainly never gave it those words. So she might believe that maybe either she's not good enough yet or they don't know how good she is, but she never believed or gave discrimination a voice. And I don't want to take that away from anybody who truly has been discriminated against. But growing up in that household, I just never saw any excuses for not succeeding. Um, you know, if, if I got in trouble at school or if I got in trouble with with a, a friend, mom always blamed me. It was never the teacher. It was never the friend. It was always me. And so she she taught us self-responsibility, which I'm really, really grateful for, because I think that um, sometimes that's not taught enough anymore.
0: Do you remember, Donna, when the first time was you, you got on a horse?
1: No. So I've ridden since my earliest memory. Um, I remember the first time I got bucked off of a horse. (laughs) When was that? I think I was about four years old. And the only reason why I remember it, I still have a little scar on my upper lip and on on my eyelid. And the only reason why I even remember it is because I remember that I couldn't talk because my lips were so swollen. And everybody thought that was funny, except for me, of course.
0: Now you had your, your siblings also... In the race business as well, right?
1: Mm -hmm. So my um, sister was uh, two and a half years older than me. She still is two and a half years older (laughs) than me. And my brother is 360 days younger than I am. And um, they both... Were jockeys. My mother, again, was a jockey, and all three of them had retired by the time I rode my first race, which was when I was 21 years old in 1987. And quite frankly, I rode my first race to eliminate that as a career choice because at that point, I had been riding horses in the morning for four and a half years. My intent when I graduated from high school was to go to college. But I graduated a year early, and I didn't really plan to graduate a year early. It just sort of worked out that way. I had my credits and I could do it. And so I did. It also coincided with my mother marrying her fifth husband, and I was just not ready for another husband. And so it was time for me to move on. And so I graduated year early, didn't really have that college plan yet. So I thought, well, I'll just gallop horses at the track, pay my way through college. And next thing you know, it's four and a half years later, I'm 21 years old, and I haven't gotten to college yet. And somebody offered me a job to come back to Kentucky. I was in Alabama at the time, offered me a job to come back to Kentucky and train horses for them. And I thought, that would be challenging, and I love the horses, but I should probably ride one race and eliminate that as a career option before Why'd I do Why do you that. want to
0: eliminate it as a career option?
1: Well, people had been telling me to be a jockey for a long time, so I'd, I'd already had an agent who had been after me for a while to ride, and I was like, oh, I don't think I want to do that. Now, I want to say part of the reason why I didn't think I wanted to do that is because, again, my mother was the leading female rider in the world. Top that, right? And so I wasn't so sure that I could be as successful as her. And I will say the one value that my mother instilled in all of us was she didn't care what we did for a living as long as we were the best at it. And she would say like, I don't care if you're a waitress, just be the best waitress there. And so my thought was, I don't know if I can be the best jockey in the world when my mother <laughs> was the leading female jockey in the world. So anyway, I rode my first race and. You know, at that point in my life, I had probably watched 10,000 races and my takeaway was, oh my God, not only is that the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life, it's the most challenging. And so I had no idea how hard it was just from watching races or how exciting.
0: Well, how, how hard is it to be a, a jockey in a, in a male-dominated sport?
1: Um, well, I've only ever been a female, so I don't know what it would be like to be a male in this sport. But I do know that being a jockey you're on equal terms with all the other jockeys. Uh, You know, the reason why women can become professional jockeys as opposed to professional baseball players is because there is the weight assignment. So you don't want to weigh more than 112 pounds, ideally. And most women can't bulk up to 225 and be fit like a baseball player. So I think that's why they can ride on even footing with the men. But the thing that I realized in the first, two months of riding is that I was not as strong as my my competitors were. And that was going to be something I needed to work on. And so I was a natural lightweight. I weighed 98 pounds when I rode my first race, but I needed to bulk up. And so I started reading books. And what I learned is that a 21-year-old female's body can turn anything into fat because it needs to prepare to have a baby. And a 21-year-old male body can turn a Twinkie into muscle because it needs to do that as a provider. And so I learned how to trick my body into building muscle and not building fat. And also the cardiovascular strength, weightlifting, things like that that. And once I got that element in place, which took me about a year, then I was able to compete equally with the guys. And at that point, I could outlift most of them. And so there was no way that they could say I wasn't as strong. They saw me at the gym.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I better be careful what I say to you here. Okay? <laughs> you know, So let me ask you a question. Now, you know, I've always wondered this as, as a jockey. You know, how, how deep does your connection go with the, the horses that you
1: ride? That depends on the horse, David. And I think that is a great question because I think, you know, a lot of people don't think about that, but it is, uh, you are a team out there with your horse. And um, I often like to use the analogy of sort of like you're an army, but that's, you're the general and the horse is your whole entire army. And so it helps if that horse has a lot of skills. Speed is a good skill to have. Um, strength, stamina, those are all good skills to have. But the best skill for that horse to have is communication. And some horses are way more open to communication than other horses.
0: Now, tell me how a horse could communicate with you.
1: So a horse communicates with a flick of the ears. And I'll give you a really good example. I rode a horse named Mushroom Tea up at Arlington Park many years ago. And as soon as I got on the horse, I'd never been on him before, and this was in a race. I got on him, and in the warm-up, I noticed that every time my hands were on his neck, he penned his ears flat back, which meant he did not like me touching his neck. And so I would lift my hands up and his ears would go forward. Put him back down, they went flat back. And I thought, great, how am I gonna ride this horse without ever touching his neck? The horse was 20 to one, and you know, I figured that out about him in the in the post parade and in the warm-up. And I managed to ride the race without touching his neck, just keeping my hands split apart. And we wanted odds of 20 to 1. And it was because of that that piece of information about him that he communicated to me, quite frankly. And also, I was was listening, right?
0: Yeah. Well, that's really, really interesting. You know, and I was going to ask you this question, but I think you answered it. Maybe you could give us a a little more more color on this. Is that, you know, because originally I thought this could be a silly question. Is But how do you motivate a horse?
1: Mm -hmm. Well... And that's the other thing is that some horses cannot stand to be touched with a whip and other horses won't move unless you touch them with a the whip, right? And so anybody who's ever raised kids knows that some kids are sensitive and some aren't. So sometimes you have a kid that you catch him doing something wrong and you you, you have to be careful not to go, Ryan, because it'll scare him and, he, and he's sensitive. Horses are the same way. So you just have to figure out with each horse, how much they want to be encouraged. And some horses, and my mother used to say this, I think one of the hardest things to do with a horse is to get out of their way because they truly do want to run and they truly do want to compete. But sometimes we d- we have to get out of their way a little bit and let them sort of navigate the ground.
0: You know, that. I think Sam Walton said that the most powerful way you can motivate people is truly to listen to them.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: very similar with, with the horses, it sounds like. And getting to know each each horse individually, just like a leader should get to know each person that works for him individually. Know know what really makes him tick.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, actually, Gary Stevens used to write a filly named Serena song for Wayne Lucas. And back at that time... I wrote a lot for Wayne Lucas. I would work Serena's song in the morning, but I had never ridden her in a race. And I noticed that every time he hit her, she would just like, um, her ears would go back and she would just shirk a little bit. And so I mentioned it to Wayne after a race one day and he watched the replay and he told Gary never to hit her again. And Gary never hit her again and she ran much, much better that way.
0: You know, have you found that some horses really are leaders, you know, and that you you just need to follow that horse?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of horses that sort of like leave the starting gate and go, I have this. But there's also horses that are timid. And there are other horses, you know, horses that are just waiting for you to tell them what to do. But the horses that leave the starting gate going, I have this for the horses I got along with the best because I feel like one of the things that I did really well was I would get out of the way. So I knew when I was on a horse that was a born leader and I would get out of the way and I might make suggestions like maybe we should slow down just a little bit. And if it was a suggestion, they would listen, but if it was a command, they would resent it. So yes.
0: yeah, well, that's, you know, It's another lesson in leadership there when you have really high talented people you know, give them the room to run their race so they can really get the job done. Now, speaking of, you know, races, you won in your career 1,130 races, I believe. What ride do you cherish the most?
1: Oh, gosh, there were just so many. I mean, there were horses that won for a $5,000 claiming price that meant as much to me as horses that won a $500,000 stake. Um, the, what I cherished the most was um, the horses that were the best communicators. Like that was, the, those were the horses that you fell in love with, were the horses that you felt like you had a relationship with and you were you had a very good understanding with. My favorite horse probably was Hennessy. Um, I won several races on him. One of them was the sapling stake in New Jersey. I ran second on him in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, but he was 12 to one when he ran second and got beat by a horse named Unbridled Song, who went on to be champion two-year-old. And so um, really the horses that I loved the most were the ones who communicated the most openly.
0: Now, you mentioned you fell off a horse when you were four years old, and you remember that. You know, Horse range racing is, is a dangerous sport. How did you muster up the courage to to really go out there and and compete in such a dangerous sport.
1: Well, that was always the furthest thing from my mind, David. Um my mother I I heard her give that advice to many people when I was growing up when they would say, "Hey, my daughter wants a pony, what do you recommend?" And my mother always said, "The first thing that you have to understand if you're going to ride horses is that they're going to get hurt." So, if you're okay with that, then I can finish, but You need to be okay with that first. And so for me, it was just an indelible part of the occupation that was an inconvenience, but not a deterrent. Um, Actually, by the time I started writing in 1987, my mother had had a career ending racing spill in 1984, in which she suffered many injuries, not the least of which was brain damage to the frontal lobe of her brain. She shattered her left jaw, broke her left collarbone in two places. It came protruding through her skin. She broke her right arm in half. She broke vertebrae, ribs, shattered her right hip. And so I was clearly aware of the dangers. But I guess the only the, the only example I can give you is that when I did break my collarbone and had a concussion in one accident, my sister came to the hospital right after the doctor had delivered the news that, in fact, I was going to have to be out six to eight weeks. And she walked in right as a tear was starting to go down my eye, and she walked in immediately concerned and said, Are you okay? Are you in pain? And I said, What am I going to do for the next six to eight weeks? And so that was always my concern is, how, how, Who am I if I'm not riding? So, no, I wasn't deterred by that.
0: You know, as a failure... Looking back on your life, as a failure or an apparent failure ever really ended up setting you up for success?
1: Yes. One that comes to mind is um, I rode a horse at Turfway Park for Wayne Lucas that um, was maybe the six to five favorite, meaning a very heavy favorite, and he ran second beating a nose. And I was fairly devastated. I, I don't know why I was so devastated by it looking back because it was a maiden race, but... You know, just like everybody, I mean, our wins and our losses are they mean something to us or we shouldn't be there. So it it really, really upset me. And um then he came back to run a month later at Churchill Downs, and it happened to be at a time when they were trying to decide on a rider for honor and glory for the Kentucky Derby, who was owned by Michael Tabor. Now Michael Tabor is from England, and Wayne wanted me to ride Honor and Glory, but he had four other horses for the Kentucky Derby that year. And so Wayne rode me back on this horse that I'd gotten beat on, um, rode me back on this horse Derby week. And at this point, he was 10 to 1, and he won by about two lengths. And it just felt like such a blessing. Like all of a sudden, in hindsight, I could see why he had to get beat that day. And what a blessing it was.
0: You mentioned Wayne Lucas, and you you were uh, one of his favorite jockeys, and and he's a... Definitely a legend in the industry. How did you get to know him and and what kind of leader is he?
1: Wayne is a phenomenal leader. First of all, he's a phenomenal horseman, which probably makes him such a great leader in his sport of horse racing because so many people admire him and respect him so much. He's very intuitive. He has, I'd say he's half horse. He really understands the horses. (laughs) Yeah, he understands the horses so well. And um, so when I first started working, so how did I start riding for Wayne? Um, I won three races opening day at Keeneland in the fall meet. It was the first time I'd ever ridden at any of the major tracks at Keeneland. And this is gonna sound like I was the most egotistical little thing in the world, I was not. So I'm just gonna preface that. It just was what I felt like needed to be done. And so I had never met Wayne Lucas, but it was opening day at the Keeneland fall meet. I was on four horses, I won three races, which made me the leading rider because there was only one day so far. So the next morning, I went by Wayne Lucas's barn, waited for him to finish up a conversation that he was having with his assistant trainer at the time, who's Todd Pletcher now, and and a a great trainer um, with national prominence. And so when they stopped talking, he sort of, you know, welcomed me over. And I just extended my hand and said, Hello, Mr. Lucas. My name is Donna Barton. I won three races here yesterday, and I know that you are in the habit of riding the hot hand, and right now that's me. So I was pretty sure you were going (laughs) to (laughs) want (laughs) to meet me. He said, well, it's nice to meet you, Donna Barton. (laughs) And I did ride two horses for him that meet. But really, the way that I got into his barn was just going by his barn day after day after day. And I would talk to him about his horses. People like to talk about what's important to them. And so I would watch his horses run the day before and say, oh, wow, that was a tough break at the start yesterday. He got slammed by the two horse. And I would just talk about his horses. And, And essentially, he would talk about his horses. I would open up the door for it. And because he knew I would check by every morning, when the jockeys get on horses in the morning, it's really um, a service. You don't get paid to do that. It's just a complimentary service. And so every day I would say, do you need me this morning? And the answer was usually no. And then, you know, one day the jockey he has lined up to work the horse isn't going to show up. And I know that's eventually going to happen. And so one day he had me work a horse and he saw that my rapport with horses was good and I worked more horses and I started riding for him and we had success together and, and one of the things I learned about um, from Wayne, I worked almost all of his derby horses for about three years there um, in the morning training. And um, I'd say the first year I started doing it, um, the media would be there after the horses worked and they'd want to talk to Wayne about how they worked. And he said, you're going to talk to the media today. And I said, OK, is there anything you'd like me to say? And he's, and his exact words were, know your message before you go out there. So you don't talk to the media, you talk through the media. And that was the first time I had ever heard that. And so I learned from Wayne, okay, here's what I want to convey about this horse and how he worked. And so no matter what they ask me, I'm going to make sure that I get that message out there. And I learned it from Wayne.
0: Uh, You know, uh, you own a piece of uh, this year's top horse, uh, Justify. Uh, He's being trained by another legend that I, I know you know, Bob Baffert. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Bob Baffert's leadership style? You know, you obviously, you see a lot of him on television, too.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, what you see from Bob Baffert on television is his one-liners, and he's um, pretty much known for that. And he does have a good sense of humor. But I would say that Bob Baffert's um, leadership style is that he really surrounds himself with the best people in the business. He has the best grooms. He has the best exercise riders. He has the best assistant trainers. He pays them well. And he expects a lot from them. He expects an awful lot from them, but he also um, is not short with compliments. Uh, You know, he'll often mention Jimmy Barnes, his top assistant. And what a great job Jimmy's done with a particular horse, or, or he might mention the exercise rider. And the people who are around him know that Bob's going to be successful. And so if they're with Bob, they're going to be successful. And an interesting um, add on to that is that the groom who rubs and and takes care of, we say rubs, but takes care of um, justify is the same groom that took care of American Pharaoh and also took care of arrogate. And so that groom is originally from a a Latino country, of which I'm not aware. It's either Panama, Puerto Rico, Mexico. And so he's sending an awful lot of money home working for Bob Baffert. And, And he's a super nice guy, but he's also really good at what he does. And so Baffert surrounds himself with really good people. But the other thing that he does really, really well is he too, like Wayne Lucas, I would say is half horse. And he does a lot of what he does on intuition. And so he might decide that a horse is going to run in a particular race, but then walk by that horse's stall and not like the way he's standing, and then tell Jimmy, his assistant, hey, Jimmy, I don't want to run him in that race. And he might not even say why. It's just he didn't like the way he was standing in his stall.
0: Wow, <laughs> that's great. You know, as we do this podcast, Justify has won the Derby and, and and the Preakness and is readying for the the Triple Crown. When you first saw Justify, did you know that Justify was a special horse? And do you, do you, at this point in time, do you think he'll win the Triple Crown?
1: Well, the first time I saw Justify was on the television screen like most people. He had broke his maiden at Santa Anita easily, and I had heard this horse broke his maiden. You need to watch the race. So I went back and watched the race. And what I thought,
0: do you mean by broke his maiden for people who don't?
1: Thank you. He um, won his very first race of his life, but it was also his debut. So it was his first start and his first win at the same time. And he did win the race impressively, but as we often say in the industry, I didn't know what was behind him. So I didn't know if he actually beat anybody. And then he came back to win his next race, which was an allowance race. It wasn't a stakes race. And then when he ran in the third race, it was the Santa Anita Derby. And I covered the Santa Anita Derby with NBC Sports. And that was when I went out to California. It was the first time I saw that horse in the flesh. And it's not until you see that horse in the flesh that he impresses you. And I think Wayne Lucas said it best. He said that um, the first time that he saw that horse in the flesh, he said he was looking down his shed row in the morning. He was really liking the way his horses were looking. They were all dappled out. They were eating everything. They were feeling good running around the barn. And then he saw Justify and went, what the hell do you do with that? (laughs) (laughs) And Steve Asmussen said the same thing. He's just one of those physical specimens that when you see him in the flesh and in person, you realize that he has that it factor that nobody has ever been able to define.
0: Do you think he'll win the Triple Crown?
1: Um, I'm reserving judgment until I see how he bounces back. So I'll watch him train at Churchill Downs within the next few days. Then I'll watch him train again when we're up in New York and I'm there with the NBC people. And, um, if he bounces back, I don't think there's any way he can lose the triple crown.
0: Tell us the keys. You're, you're deeply involved in the thoroughbred business. You know, tell us the, what's the key to, to being really successful in that business? What are the big drivers?
1: Well, first of all, your name has to mean something. And so you have to establish credibility in this sport. Everything is by word of mouth. We don't sign contracts with almost anything. Agents don't sign contracts with their jockeys. Jockeys don't sign contracts with the trainers. Trainers don't sign contracts with the owners. And so your word has to matter. And so first of all, your word has to be impeccable. Secondly, your reputation has to be impeccable. And so I think that's one of the reasons why People are in this business for a while before they have any real success because they have to get to a point where they have some credibility, some, some history behind them that says you can count on this person. And the other thing is you have to figure out how to win. When I had my apprenticeship, I was riding at Rockingham Park and I flew to Monmouth Park, or I'm sorry, Meadowlands to ride a race. And Julie Crone, who was had just passed my mother's record two weeks before that, was riding there at the time. And she met me and said, do you want to know how to win races? And I said, of course. And she said, ride for people who win races. And while that sounds really easy, it's not your first thought. Because as a jockey, it's really easy to get into somebody's barn if they're not winning races. They're looking to make some changes. But it's hard to get into the barn of somebody who's already winning races. They don't need to change anything. And so you have to figure out a way to get on the same page with that person, to develop a rapport with that person, to impress that person enough for them to say, "Okay, I'll give you a chance," and that is really the secret to success in this business: is to surround yourself with successful people and figure out or, or figure out how to be with people who have figured out how to win.
0: Yeah, you know, I've learned that you've you've become very passionate about giving to those that are less fortunate than you. You know, how do you give back to to society and or the community? What do you What do you do? And why are you Why do you Why is that turning you on now?
1: Well, um, you know, I I went through another crisis a few years ago, several actually years ago, and I thought, you know, what I'm doing isn't important. I'm not saving lives. I'm not feeding hungry children. I'm not doing anything to change the world. And I just felt like very unimportant. And then all of a sudden I realized that I'm in a unique position to, number one, entertain people. I mean, they turn on the TV to be entertained. And a lot of people have lives that they need to break away from. And so if the only thing that we do that day is entertain, that's great. But if we can also inspire people, and if we can also empower people, then we've done a lot of good things on that day. Um, So yes, we will inform some, but mostly we wanna entertain, empower, inspire. So I realized that if I could do those three things for people, then I am improving lives. Now, take that one step further, For whatever reason, people on television get credibility, whether they deserve it or not, not. but it also opens doors for me. And so it's also helped me to do a lot of fundraising for the Backside Learning Center at Churchill Downs, where you have employees back there who work seven days a week, they really dedicate their lives to the horses, but they don't have a lot of resources. They don't have, first of all, they don't have a lot of money because even though they do make good money, they send a large portion of their money back home for people who, you know, they have large families back there who aren't necessarily able to get the kind of jobs that they have. And so a lot of their money goes back home to their families. And so at the Backside Learning Center, we provide Spanish second language, English second language labs. Um, we have a lab lab. Um, Computer lab in there. We've got art classes, we've got um, path to citizenship classes, so um, banking classes. So we have all sorts of resources for them. But the one that probably touches me the most is Maryhurst because these girls at Maryhurst are age 11 to 19. And by the time they get to Maryhurst here in Louisville, they've usually been through an average of five failed foster home placements. The average grade for them, or or I should say equivalent of their grade, is fourth grade. So they come there maybe 13 years old with something that's the equivalent of a fourth grade education. And so Maryhurst really gives these girls an opportunity to change their lives. And so I do yoga there one day a week. I teach yoga out at Maryhurst, and it just gives me a chance to be able to be involved with the girls' lives. And more than that, I think it it, it makes sure that the girls have a steady presence in their life i show up once a week i'm always there and they could always talk to me if they wanted to um, i do mentor one of the girls who's 11 years old and have been her mentor for about a year and uh yeah it's just nice to be able to to be a good influence
0: yeah, i really love how you Give your personal time. That's that's a lot different than just giving out the money.
1: Well, when I went to Maryhurst, I said, I would like to be involved with the girls. I don't want to be on your board. I will donate money, but that's I want more than that. I want to be involved with the girls. And so we worked out the yoga.
0: That's great. Good for you. You know, you've also written, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm talking about all these things you've done. You've got a pretty busy <laughs> life here, but you've also written a, a, a terrific book that I really enjoyed, Inside Track, The Inside Guide to, to Horse Racing. Tell us the story behind that book.
1: Well, when I started the work I do for NBC Sports, one of our producers' names is Rob Hyland. And I know his mother, Ann Hyland, even though I've never met her, because Rob always says, you're talking to my mother, Ann Hyland. I don't want to hear that the horses went in 22 and two. Nobody knows what that means. This is my mother, Ann Hyland. So if you're going to say they went in 22 and two, you have to say the horses went very fast for the first quarter of a mile in 22 and two. And so- It wasn't really until I started working for NBC Sports and had to really figure out the way that I was going to say things that made it inclusive for everybody that I realized just how inside a lot of the uh, lingo that we have is. And so I thought there needs to be a book that just simplifies this, where people could just like turn to a chapter and if they wanted to know more about jockeys, read that. If they want to know how to bet the races, read that. If they want to know what to where to the track, read that. And so I think I'd said that for about five years before finally I was like, nobody's going to write this book, so I'm going to have to write it. <laughs> so I wrote the book. It came together very easily. And the biggest compliment that I ever got was when Mike Tirico started doing the broadcast with us. He told me that he got my book and he still keeps it in his um, briefcase anytime he might need the glossary of terms. So that makes me feel good because Mike Tirico, I believe, is one of the best broadcasters in sports. Well,
0: we always give it out to our, our derby guests as well. Uh, Thank you for that. You know, uh, you know as... As as a journalist, what do you think of the of the Me Too movement and how have you seen it really impact the, the broadcast industry?
1: Well, I think people are more careful now. And I'll give you an example. I had somebody send me an email the other day that um, I thought was off color and I thought should not have been sent. And it was somebody who was an older white male who I've known for a very, very long time. And I thought about just hitting delete. And instead I replied, this isn't cool. And I just figured I would see what he said. And so he emailed me back and he said, I'm sorry if I offended you. And I said, I'm going to be honest with you. That humor is for, I call that, um, what what was it? Um, Old in parentheses, white boy humor. And it's not funny to people like me and it never has been. And it's time that we say that. And I would have been remiss not to. But for the record, I still like you. I just don't like this kind of humor. And that's what it's done. It's made people like me because I don't think I would have done that before the Me Too movement. I I think I would have just hit delete and gone like, that's not funny, but just hit delete. And I think it's made people like us now stand up and go, wait a second, just so you know, that's not funny. And I'm not going to laugh. And you probably shouldn't say something like that. And so, you know, in, I think, at NBC, since I've been there, they've always been, and I've been there since two thousand. they've always been very conscientious of how they treat their employees. And so I don't think that it's changed my work at NBC or even the way we do our broadcast, but it's changed me, I think, for the better.
0: No, that's great. it's it's empowered you to, to to really speak out, yeah, and take a stand, which is which is fantastic. You know, you're obviously a leader, and you've you've really, you know, sought out different careers and then tried to be best at it. You know, how are you honing your leadership skills today?
1: Well, one of the things I did was read Taking People With You by (laughs) David Novak, which I thought was a really well-written book, and I enjoyed it. But one of the things I do often is I I do workshops, right? I guess I could call them retreats or events, but I've been to several Tony Robbins events. I've been to several Deepak Chopra events and really... I've realized that the only thing that any of us can do truly is lead by example. And so I go to all these events to make myself a better person and so that I can lead by example. And for me, I I have, as I've already mentioned, I only have one employee and she's very good. So she doesn't need a whole lot of guidance, but I have seven nieces and nephews and I have a brother and a sister and I have lots of friends. And what matters the most to me is when people say, you know, I made this choice today because of you. I thought of you when I made this choice. And so if I just continue to lead by example, then I think that that'll do a lot. And, and I think we can all do that. You know,
0: Donna, you always talk about, I've heard you say it a few times in this podcast, that you, you only have one person, but you're you're dealing with hundreds of people. You're dealing with all kinds of different people and that you have to apply your, your leadership skills. So leading by example with them, I'm sure... Uh, Inspires. What, what did you say? You try to inspire, engage, empower. empower. Yeah, yes. that's fantastic. I, I, I love that.
1: And one of the things, by the way, my mentor Tom Hammond taught me was one of the very first shows we did. He asked me, "What's that runner's name?" Now the runners on our shows are sort of the gophers, and I said, "I don't know. I'm not sure I ever knew her name." And he said, "I think her name's Julia." And so I realized that to Tom Hammond, who was kind of the leader, it was important to him to know. The runner's name. So it should probably be important for me to learn all their names too. And so that's also helped me a lot in in just feeling like we have a cohesive group.
0: As we kind of wrap this up here, you know, what would be your three bits of advice you'd give to aspiring leaders?
1: I guess the very first thing is to work on your leadership because it wasn't until I started doing things like reading your book, quite frankly, I'm not just saying that because you're here, reading your book, taking people with you, doing the Tony Robbins things, that I realized that there were places where I was missing. And I think it's, you know, you get into a position sometimes of leadership without ever having been taught how to be a leader, like some people become parents without ever having read a parenting book. And so it helps to um, get those kind of um Uh, workshops or read those sorts of books so you can see how it affects you. And I guess the second thing I would say is to be a good example, because you're going to have to lead by example. People will remember what you did. They'll maybe remember what you said, but they will certainly remember what you did. And I guess the third thing is, is work hard. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's kind of hard to substitute putting the, the, the time in to, to really be great at what you do. Exactly. You know, Donna, you're, you're an absolutely amazing person and you've had, you're having an amazing career and you've just, you know, you, you sit there and say, I only have one person that's working for <laughs> I me. Mean, it's obviously that you, you cast a wide net and you're making a big difference in the world. And I really appreciate you sharing your many insights with us. Uh, during this time. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you, David. And I appreciate the wide net that you've cast as well. Thank you. Okay,
0: thanks. Well, that was an absolutely fascinating inside view of the racing industry. Isn't it interesting that Donna believes that the key to winning horse races depends on a jockey's ability to listen to what the horse is actually communicating? What does that horse really need to be encouraged? What makes that horse tick? What does that horse hate? Well, when you think about it, there are so many parallel learnings that we can take from horse racing and apply as leaders. So here's some coaching for you. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, think about your team. What motivates each team member individually? How do they like to communicate? What kind of recognition do they value? Great leaders know how to answer these questions, and they know that the answers are different for every person they lead. Dive into these questions and I know that you'll be able to lead your people to victory as well. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that the great leaders know what motivates each team member. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world.